welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is John M. Newman, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Miami School of Law. We will discuss his article, Pro-Competitive Justifications in Antitrust Law, which was published in the Indiana Law Journal. So welcome to the show, John. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to have you on. I've been really enjoying your commentary on antitrust issues on on Twitter, and I thought this paper was a really nice and clean and insightful take on how antitrust enforcement works. So I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you. Yeah, absolutely. It was a it was a fun paper to take uh, a crack at. So it, you know, it basically, as you know, kind of flips the usual method of approaching antitrust law. Which is to talk about what what kinds of things cause harm, um, and this actually tries to understand antitrust by talking about well what kinds of things are good. Well, so for listeners who may not be that familiar with antitrust policy and antitrust theory, um, I wonder if you could start by just talking about a little bit about what the purpose of antitrust law is, insofar as there's like a consensus on the purpose of antitrust law. Yeah, so that's that's a good question, a broad question, um, but I think one that we can can narrow down a little bit. So, if we divide it between you know what antitrust law currently is and what antitrust law might be, that might help. So, what is antitrust law right now? I think there's a there's a pretty widespread consensus um, among kind of orthodox antitrust people, you might call them, that the antitrust law is meant to protect the economic conception of consumer welfare. Um, yeah, there's quotes from the Supreme Court saying as much. Um, so I think that's kind of the contemporary orthodox uh, understanding. And the way that antitrust goes about protecting this thing called consumer welfare um, is to kind of target particular types of conduct by companies and by people who participate in markets. And you can kind of break that down into three buckets. And one is monopolization, right? So antitrust worries when one com- company gets too big. And then does something that harms consumers' uh, welfare. Two would be kind of restraints of trade. So we worry when companies get together and agree to do things that harm consumer welfare. And then the third one would be mergers um, and acquisitions that potentially, again, harm consumer welfare. So that's kind of the three big buckets. But the, the unifying thread would be this notion of uh, consumers and, and their welfare, their economic welfare. So... When courts are deciding whether or not particular conduct by a company or group of companies violates antitrust law, how do they go about making that determination? In other words, what do they look to and what factors guide them in their decision-making process? So here's where, you know, immediately where the rubber hits the road, things start to get a little fuzzier, a little more contestable, you might say. Um, you know, it's one thing to sort of say, here are these Econ 101 graphs, and this is what consumer welfare looks like in theory. But in a given case, you know, that that gets pretty fuzzy pretty quickly. Um, so different courts will kind of take somewhat different approaches to figuring out whether something harmful has happened or is about to happen. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've seen emerge, really tracing its way all the way back to, you know, Robert Bork and the Chicago School Revolution is a focus on output. And if you look at the most recent big Supreme Court antitrust case, Ohio v. American Express, uh, Justice Thomas writing for the majority kind of seems to insist that a showing of harm to welfare in the form of lower output is necessary. 
So that would be one way courts would go about this. They would say, oh, does, did output go down in the market? If so, that's a harm to consumers' welfare. Um, other courts seem to look more at, at like the competitive process, and I talk about some of those in the paper. Um, so there's a li- there's kind of a range once you start looking at actual judicial decisions on what what is harmful. So when you talk about output, what do you mean by that? Um, well, if we think about a classic widget market, right, that famous uh, made up pro- product that we talk about in all law school classes, having to do with businesses and markets. Um, if if fewer widgets are made because of the conduct of the defendant or defendants, that would be your lower output. Um, and that, that, again, kind of traces its, its roots back to the standard micro 101 uh, models that are pretty common in antitrust theory. They basically say, like, when a firm gets market power or when a cartel forms, they're going to be incentivized to raise prices and reduce output. So when price goes up, uh, you sell less widgets. There's your output harm. Now, that's that's kind of the standard, but people say output can take different forms. So a quality reduction, that's been found to be an output reduction in a sense. Um, less innovation you could kind of think of as a type of output reduction. So it's you know, a little broader than it sounds, but that's the basic idea. So in your paper, you talk about the rule of reason. And I wonder if you could explain what the rule of reason is and what role it plays in antitrust law, specifically in helping courts determine or maybe even kind of in a sense defining how courts determine whether or not particular conduct is uh, in violation of the antitrust laws. Oh, man, that's another good one. Uh, I, I should note for the record that any one of these questions could probably uh, spawn a half hour, hour long conversation between us. So we'll take a quick crack at this one. The rule of reason, um, as it's emerged, it kind of has a couple of different meanings. Now, one, sometimes it's used to just just point out the fact that the Sherman Act cannot be read literally. Uh, if it were read literally, then every contract which restrains trade to some extent, right, would be illegal. Um, and judges kind of quickly said, no, this can't quite be right. Not every contract uh, is is anti-competitive and illegal under the Sherman Act. So what judges did was they read the word unreasonable into the Sherman Act. So that the Sherman Act, instead of condemning every contract or, you know, combination or whatever, only condemns unreasonable ones. So that's one kind of sense of the rule of reason that we just implied the word reasonable into the statute. More commonly, though, uh, today, when we say the rule of reason, we're, we're referring to a particular mode of analysis that applies to stuff that we think is not the worst of the worst when it comes to antitrust conduct, but it's kind of somewhere in the middle. It's not obviously bad. It's not obviously good. And the way that courts kind of uh, developed to analyze this is to First, it's a burden-shifting framework. So first, the burden is on the plaintiff to show some kind of anti-competitive harm. And we talked about you know that being a little bit fuzzy, a little unclear what counts, but um, that's the burden. And then once the plaintiff carries their burden, the, the burden of, of persuasion shifts over to the defendant. The defendant has to come up with some what's increasingly called a pro-competitive justification for their conduct. And if they do that, then the burden would shift back to the plaintiff to try to rebut that evidence or, you know, maybe come up with some better way the defendant could have done that nice thing. But if the defendant fails to come up with a pro-competitive justification, you're done and uh, the conduct is illegal. So that's the kind of basic burden shifting framework. So, So as I understand it from your paper, 
there's also a kind of zero step as it were in the sense that like some forms of conduct are just per se in violation of the antitrust law and other kinds of conduct it's like the court has to do an analysis to essentially determine whether it's like justified under the circumstances or something well yeah so this is this is super super interesting um and this i think is something that not even a lot of antitrust lawyers and and i'm going to say it even some antitrust professors i don't think really grasp this this point so I'm glad that you, you've seized onto it. Um, we in the antitrust community often talk about some types of conduct as if, oh, those are just per se illegal. They're always illegal. They're always bad. Um, they're very easy to analyze. We don't get into that full you know, rule of reason, burden shifting analysis. We don't consider whether the conduct is justified. It's just plain illegal. So a really common one would be price fixing, horizontal competitors agreeing to set prices, we say. Oh, that's that's per se illegal. That's always bad. You never get a chance to justify it if you're a defendant. Um, that's that's really oversimplifying it, though. That's not actually true. These these buckets of conduct that we talk about being per se illegal um, are sometimes treated that way, but sometimes aren't. So, what I what I point out in the paper is that even before we make the call, should this be treated as quote per se illegal? Or should it get that more full burden shifting rule of reason analysis we talked about earlier? That there's this kind of zero step that, that of analysis that has to occur um, where a court takes like a like a glance, I guess you might call it, at the defendant's arguments. And and if the defendant has some good explanations that, you know, at least on their face aren't laughable. Um, or if it's like a new unfamiliar market, so the court maybe doesn't understand the, uh, this particular market very well. Um, courts have repeatedly applied that fuller rule of reason treatment instead of that harsh per se treatment. So it's kind of one of those threads that are all over antitrust law that once you start tugging at it, it's like, oh, this is actually quite a bit more interesting, quite a bit less settled and more contestable than we might think. So it seems like one of the difficult things is determining exactly whether and why particular conduct is or isn't justified under under the circumstances. And and you pre- present kind of three different theories of antitrust enforcement uh, or of justification, uh, a market failure theory, a competitive process theory, and a type of effect theory. And I wonder if you could just briefly describe sort of what each one of those theories sees as uh, the kind of basis for justifying um, an action or antitrust enforcement in particular circumstances and and how they differ from each other. Yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe we'll start with the competitive process theory. So let's go in chronological order, if we could. Um, and the competitive process approach, which is seeing a bit of a resurgence uh, among contemporary scholarship and commentary. So some people want, want us to go back to this competitive process approach, uh, basically asks whether you know, the defendant's conduct somehow harms the competitive process, or whatever that means. Now, that's not often defined very clearly, but you can certainly see that language um, pop up in case law. And as I said, there are some scholars out there calling for a return to this competitive process approach to antitrust. Um, It's kind of hard to see how conduct can ever be justified 
if you use this approach. So it's kind of interesting in that way for my purposes. If something harms the competitive process, it's just kind of hard to see how that thing could help the competitive process if you, if you follow. So if we take this approach, I think we're in general more likely to find harms um, and in general a little less likely to find justifications. And sure enough, the time period during which this was very much en vogue among courts was a pretty plaintiff-friendly and defendant-unfriendly time period. In fact, it's often called the inhospitality era of antitrust. So that's that first approach. We look for whether something harms the competitive process. If so, it's kind of hard to figure out how that might be justified. Uh, The second one, and I'd say this is this is, you know, kind of the the modern one, the contemporary one, is what I call the market failure approach. And that uh, basically uses the same microeconomic, you know, really kind of Chicago school price theoretic type uh, economic theory to inform what counts as a justification. And it draws on this familiar economic notion of market failure, right? So, you know, if you're thinking back to micro 101 again, um, there's this kind of laundry list of things that can happen in a market that economists, you know, kind of uh, orthodox economists would say, will cause that market to not perform very well. One of them would be an externality, right? So a classic example of a market failure would be a, a negative externality, a factory that dumps pollutants into a stream, and that ends up poisoning a town that's uh, downstream from it. We call it an externality because the parties to the kind of core transaction, this factory making stuff and selling it, don't experience the costs of that production. Um, So this market failure approach would say, uh, these things happen. Markets don't always work well. Um, Maybe they often don't work well. So defendants can justify their conduct by saying, well, hey, the market wasn't working well on its own. So we needed to get together and agree to do something that would fix it. And uh, the way that can show up in the case law is like, um, you know, a classic free rider defense. A defendant does something that looks kind of like a restraint of trade, but then says, oh, we needed to do that in order to prevent free riding. And that pops up in a lot of antitrust cases. And courts have said repeatedly, oh, yeah, that's a good justification. Why? I say because that's a market failure. Now, the third one you've, you you mentioned, the type of effect approach, um, I look at it as kind of a shortcut market failure type approach. And it basically says, okay, we get the basic economics that are going on here, um, but we think we can do it more quickly. So we think there are certain effects that tend to happen when defendants are doing good things and certain effects that happen when they're doing bad things. And we'll just look for those effects rather than doing this market failure thing. So a good example, again, would be output. So here we could just say, oh, if the defendant's restraint made output go up, that's a good thing. So that must be a good justification. And I point out in the paper why I think that's uh, not a good approach. I've actually got a a draft paper on why output is not really related to to consumer welfare in the same way that people often think it is. So those are the three. Mm -hmm. Well, so in the paper, you suggest specifically that the uh, competitive process and type of effect approaches are – are are subject to certain kinds of errors that make them undesirable. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you see them as being particularly error prone and why you think that's a problem for those particular approaches. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here I'm, I'm, I certainly didn't invent error cost analysis. So I'm drawing from the, the Chicago School framework that was really first sort of identified by uh, Frank Easterbrook, a prominent Chicagoan. And um, his basic contribution was that we should think about the skew of errors when we design judicial rules. Um, now, he had a bunch of like really loaded assumptions that, that he sort of worked into his normative prescription. But that basic idea, I think, is, is um, a sound one. Uh, and we should be thinking about you know, judicial errors when we design our rules. Um, so starting with that type of effect approach, I talked a little bit already about how, you know, these effects that we think of as, as being really, really helpful, you know, maybe they are in some cases, maybe they aren't in others. So sometimes output can be going up and that's a bad thing. Sometimes output, output can be going down and that's actually a good thing. Uh, you know, getting back to the factory polluting example, it's like output of widgets might be going up when the factory can can lower its cost by just dumping its uh, its waste into a river. But I don't think anybody should be looking at that as a good thing. So, so this type of effect approach, I think, will tend to just skew outcomes. Um, there'll just be these, these sort of randomly distributed errors. And that doesn't seem like a good thing. The competitive process approach, you know, I think is attractive um, to some people in part because it... Uh, does cabin in the extent to which defendants can offer justifications. And maybe that's a good thing, but I really haven't seen a good explanation of what exactly we mean by competitive process. And until I see that, I worry about what a judge would do if they were confronted with uh, the questions about whether the competitive process has been harmed or benefited. Um, if you can't really explain it to a judge, uh, we're not going to, I don't think, get really sound, good judicial decisions. So that kind of leaves me or left me when I was writing this with this market failure approach. Um, I, I suggest some ways that I think it can be improved, and I absolutely think it can. But it does seem to minimize uh, errors, at least within the current consumer welfare paradigm. So, so John, in, in your paper, you suggest that the proponents of the uh, competitive process approach levy some criticisms at the market failure approach. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those criticisms are and why they don't ultimately undermine the relative appeal of the market failure approach. Yeah. So this this is a really uh, particularly great question, I think, because it, it helps illustrate why it's so interesting to think about antitrust from the perspective of justifications rather than from the perspective of harm, which is kind of how people more often talk about it. Um, so if you look at this from the perspective of justifications, it's it's really the divide between, you know, the Chicago school or the old school approach to antitrust and the new critical movement that's often called neo-Brandeisian or, you know, somewhat uh, derogatorily hipster antitrust. Um, I think in general, the neo-Brandeisians are in favor of something like a competitive process approach. Uh, and the you know Chicagoans would very much be in favor of this market failure approach. Now they might not like my ultimate normative conclusions, but in general, I think they would like this. Uh, the I think the the biggest criticism that the competitive process people would levy at at a market failure approach would be to say that it's it's just too narrow. You know, it it still depends on the old price theoretic models that underlie. Uh, the the Chicago School revolution in antitrust law, and as such, you know it, it's very dependent on price. It 
kind of tends to assume that output is really important, uh, which leads to some some problems that I do admit in the paper. Um, so I think that's kind of the biggest criticism. It's just very narrow. It's led to an ossification of antitrust law. And honestly, I think those are pretty trenchant critiques. You know, I think there's there's something to them. My, my kind of response in the paper is to say that while competitive process is an interesting alternative, I still haven't seen it defined very well. And if it's not defined very well, it's really unclear to me whether defendants or how defendants could ever justify their conduct. Uh, you know, maybe you're okay with that, but I think in general, we, we don't want a set of antitrust laws that offer no defenses whatsoever. You could point to situations where I think even neo-Brandeisians would agree, hey, defendants should have some out here. For instance, when antitrust laws are used to crack down on on labor groupings or, or you know, uh, unions, essentially, not not like legal unions because they have a uh, limited immunity. But, you know, for instance, Uber drivers attempts to organize. I think even the neo-Brandeisians would say we want them to have some defense. Well, if you, if you haven't defined competitive process very well yet, uh, it's kind of unclear why there should be a defense um, because, you know, this thing, this restraint does look like it harmed the competitive process. So that's to some extent my my response is to say, hey, this is a really interesting line of critique, but I'd, I'd love to see a more, um, you know, formalized definition, or at least some definition of what we mean by competitive process. Um, the other point I think in the paper is, is to say that this is kind of an internal critique to some extent that I make. Um, and that is to say, like, let's take the consumer welfare paradigm as a given. It, it does seem to be the dominant mode of analysis in contemporary antitrust. Um, if that is a given, I do think the market failure approach is the one that's being used. And so my contribution then is to say, like, how can we improve it? How can we tighten it up? Hmm. Well, so in that light, what do you see as being the most kind of um, the most trenchant or the most kind of biting critiques of the market failure approach as it's currently applied? And sort of what kinds of changes do you think could make it work better for antitrust enforcement? Um, so my, I guess, biggest problem that I see is that there's this asymmetricality between what courts insist that plaintiffs prove and what they allow defendants to just sort of assert or hand wave about. Uh, and that's really where I try to to offer a, a more rigid framework that would cabin in some of these defendants' pro-competitive justification arguments. Um, so plaintiffs under this consumer welfare type framework that's developed bear an almost unbelievably difficult burden. And that shows up in the statistics on who wins rule of reason cases. Um, defendants win something like 99% of the time. Uh, so I, I do think that's a real problem. Part of the problem is that plaintiff's burden is, is just way too heavy, I think. Um, you know, if you think about like what you'd actually have to prove to win a case, you at this point pretty much have to sort of prove a ton of weird counterfactuals. You have to um, prove that in a hypothetical market that's just a made-up thing, that a hypothetical you know monopolist would control a hypothetical price. So you just, as a plaintiff, are, are just off in this strange metaphysical wilderness that judges have forced you to go into. And then if you do manage to carry your burden, which again is almost impossible to do now, the burden shifts over to the defendants. And what you see a lot of courts doing 
is just accepting whatever the defendants offer at face value. So there's no real, you know, um, strenuous requirements put on the other side. Uh, and you, you get these just totally bogus claims. Of, but defendants can almost just say the words free riding and get out of trouble in some of the cases I've talked about in the paper. So that's where the, this, this contribution of mine, I think, really focuses is to try to say, you know, if we're going to do this, if we're going to do this consumer welfare thing, the Chicago school thing, um, we got to do it in a rigorous way and, and we can't do it totally asymmetrically like we've been doing. So we need a rigorous framework for defendants um, like the one that we've put on plaintiffs. I'd still say the one on plaintiffs is, is, is too much, but um, at least this might start to level the playing field a little bit. Yeah, well, maybe you could talk a little bit about one of the examples from the paper of how you think courts have applied the rule of reason in an excessively defendant-friendly kind of way. Um, yeah, so in the paper, I set up a case comparison between two different cases involving credit card markets, but now we have a Supreme Court decision on one of them, so we can just use the same case, which is great. Um, and that case is what turned into Ohio v. American Express. Um, the if you go back and look at the district court opinion, it it does this really thorough job. It's just over 100 pages long, I think. Um, goes into great detail, um, kind of talks about how the judge is reluctant to find the way he did, but he ultimately felt compelled by the weight of the evidence. So a really nice opinion. Um, and and what that case found was that the plaintiffs had borne this very, very uh, – onerous burden of proof. I should add that I was on the trial team, so I'm maybe a little biased, but, you know, trying to be objective as possible here. Uh, he found that plaintiffs had, had proven, um, you know, in this very complicated market that the defendants actually had uh, done some things that, that did restrain trade, that did harm their customers, um, that actually ended up harming, you know, low-income people in particular, um, the plaintiffs had, had proven market power, which is a really hard thing to do. So then uh, the burden shifted over to the defendant. This at the trial court level. And Amex offered a bunch of different arguments, a bunch of different justifications, including the free rider one, of course. Uh, and the district court just walked through in a very, you know, thorough, rigorous way why this market didn't actually exhibit the problems that Amex was supposedly pointing to. Um, and, and ultimately concluded that these justifications uh, weren't valid. Okay, and that probably ate up, you know, at least a couple pages, maybe more of the de the decision, rigorous cites to the record, et cetera, et cetera. Really nicely done. So that's a good example of market failure analysis. Uh, going up to the Supreme Court level, you see Justice Thomas writing for the majority, and he just kind of just tosses into a paragraph without any real factual support. Like, oh yeah, this this uh, restraint it it cured an externality. There's like a citation to the district court opinion, but it's actually a citation to the part of the opinion where the district court was talking about Amex's arguments before it went on to debunk those. So it's really not a cite to the factual record. Uh, it's, it's just kind of lazy and intellectually sloppy. And that I would say is, is an example of not a rigorous you know market failure analysis not uh, of the sort that I would prefer to, to see and that I argue for in the paper. Right. So then the idea would be that when we put the burden on defendants to show that the conduct they're engaging in is ultimately pro-consumer and pro-consumer welfare, we ought to take that obligation more seriously and really force them to make a stronger case for why the behavior that we would otherwise see as anti-competitive is ultimately pro-competitive in practice. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, if we think about this at a backing out just a little bit, the burden is initially on the plaintiffs to show, hey, something has gone wrong in this market. Um, and if they do that, then the defendant has to prove, well, but the market itself wasn't working well, right? That's that's what we're talking about here. Um, so if we're going to insist that one side show this market wasn't working well, uh, it only seems, <laughs> I guess, fair to insist that defendants do that as well. Um, and what I end up pointing to is like, you got to prove the market actually suffered this failure. Um, and you have to prove that your your restraint actually fixed it. That shouldn't be enough to just say uh, a magic phrase. Mm. Well, so, so John, in, in closing, you know, antitrust policy has been at least one strand and one I think that you and I both have been following to some degree in the current presidential campaigns, especially on the on the Democratic side, um, especially around kind of big tech and companies like Google and Facebook and so on. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit to the extent, you know, we can in in a kind of speculative way, I guess, about how the kind of approach you're talking about might play out in the context of that conversation and how it might be potentially different than the way courts have been uh, approaching these kinds of questions under a more, more kind of defendant-friendly kind of framework. Yeah, so um, maybe we could we could start to set up a little bit of a distinction by pointing by pointing to some of the things that the current Justice Department has done. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the investigation that's been launched into the uh, a bunch of automakers who agreed together and with the state of California to lower emissions uh, on their vehicles, so to make more fuel efficient and uh, lower emission vehicles, which to the average person, I think probably just sounds like a good thing. Uh, it's kind of nice that they're doing that. But to a old school, you know, uh, very strictly Chicago perspective, I guess you could kind of see how maybe that looks like a horizontal cartel. But I think if we apply this market failure approach in a thoughtful way, we would say, oh, you know what, even if this is a horizontal agreement, um, even if it in some sense, restrains trade in some way, it seems pretty obviously designed to fix a classic market failure. That is uh, negative externality, a pollution, like we talked about earlier. So this, I think, framework can actually shed light on how some things that maybe look bad are not actually bad. So it's not just a plaintiff-friendly or defendant-friendly um, thing. Another example would be uh, the current Justice Department's efforts to stop Uber drivers and Lyft drivers from organizing, collective organizing. And we could apply our, our market failure lens and say, you know what, if this is a very concentrated labor market, well, that's a source of, of market failure. Uh, you know, a monopsony or a monopoly is a classic source of market failure. So using our approach, we could say, oh, the, even if this is a horizontal agreement, um, it's actually a good one. It's, it's doing the thing we want uh, agreements to do, curing a market failure. So that, I think, would be a useful lens. Um, you know, I would hope it would be something that the next administration would be able to bring to bear. It's been something I've been a little bit disappointed with the current DOJ uh, about. Um, but yeah, as you said, there there's multiple candidates on the Democratic side that are offering very different visions for antitrust. Um, you know, it'll be exciting to see where it goes. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, John. This is a really illuminating conversation about the history and hopefully the future of antitrust policy and enforcement. 
Thanks again for having me. Nothing, nothing. Indeed, an ordinary meat, meat. Till Schultz dressed me up in prime wrap, prime wrap. And now I can't be beat. I'm Rex roast, he's Rex roast, and I'm good enough to good eat, enough. good enough to eat.